copy of God's Word to the book of Mark. Gospel of Mark, chapter 4. been working through the Gospel of Mark in Oshkosh for some time, and um, this has been one of the chapters that has been most surprising to me and perhaps to some in our own congregation, perhaps it would be to you as well, but also a great encouragement regarding the very way that our Lord sought to minister his word when he was on earth and the intended effect of it, and there are many lessons we can take from that for ourselves. So today we'll consider um, not the parable of the sower, but what this passage we're about to read reveals to us about Jesus' own strategy of using parables, his parabolic strategy. And here, if the Lord helps, we will gain insight into the mind of our God. But before we go to the reading, let's pray. Father in heaven, we do come to your word, and we give you thanks for it. Here it is, proliferated in our land, in our language, in multiple translations. Not every people group on this planet has such a privilege. We acknowledge the grace you've shown to us, Lord, through history to bring us to every moment we open your word or hear it in our own native tongue. And we give you thanks for this privilege. And we pray, Father, that that this great privilege would teach us to be humble and to be attentive at your word. And we ask, Father, would it not merely be ears that hear, but hearts that believe and that live out that which we hear. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Mark chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Again, he, that is Jesus, began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. God's word. 
pardon me. Well, congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, we hear often of our Lord's parables in the scriptures. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have many in them. There are really none in the Gospel of John, but they are a key feature of Jesus' own ministry among men while he was here on earth among us. We can think of the variety. There are over 60 parables of Jesus in Scripture. Some of them have many moving parts, extended narratives, and others are very simple, like do not cast your pearls before the swine, which is a one-liner parable. Um, They're all over the place, but in the Gospel of Mark, there are actually relatively few. The Gospel of Mark focuses a lot on Jesus' actions. We hear the words immediately, the word immediately, frequently. He did this, then he did that, then he did this, then he did that. It's a a very action-packed gospel, but where we have a place where many parables are taught, we ought to focus in in a context like this. Something key is being revealed to us about the life of our Lord, about the wisdom of our Lord in his manner of ministering his word among men. Most of the time, Jesus' parables have something to do with the kingdom of God. It may be quick to be drawn to your memory. When Jesus began ministering, this was his message, was it not? Um, He said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And many parables begin this way. The kingdom of God is like, or to what shall we compare the kingdom of God? It is like, and then a narrative follows. Parables are earthly pictures with heavenly meanings. They're natural stories with a supernatural significance. That's what a parable is. And the earthly pictures or natural stories come from very familiar features of the hearers' lives. The parables were about fishing, farming, family life, housekeeping. The pictures of the parables might be foreign to us, perhaps, or some of us, because we're not living in an ancient agrarian society. But these pictures were not foreign at all to Jesus' hearers. They didn't have to use much imagination to picture what he spoke about in the parables, in fact. They had personally experienced these sorts of things. So on the one hand, they didn't need any special vocabulary or secret knowledge to visualize the simple scenes of those parables. And yet, getting to the heavenly meaning was not so simple or easy. Many of his parables are confounding. Many of them surprise us. And Jesus loved to use parables. Verse 11 of our passage tells us that Jesus taught everything in parables, at least to the crowds. This is clarified in chapter 4, verses 33 and 34. You might flip a page or look later on the page already opened and see that, verses 33 and 34, which says, after a series of parables, it says, with many such parables he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples he explained everything. Why did Jesus use parables? Why did he proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the crowds with pictures? Today our goal is to understand Jesus' parabolic strategy. And we seek this understanding as those who minister in his name, 
whether formally, as I'm doing here now, or informally and organically in the lives that we live day in and day out. For although, saints, Christ completed the work he came to do, he has commissioned us to represent him in this world. And we ought to pay attention to his own stratagems among men and take them up as the holy stratagems of heaven. It'll be important to understand why Jesus used parables in his ministry, not because we will use parables, but because the very logic, the heavenly logic that underlies his parabolic ministry ought to be present in our own church and our own lives. So we're going to consider a couple points here. The first is the immediate effect of the parables. The immediate effect of the parables that Jesus intended, which is the power to sort. The power to sort. The parables reveal the kingdom of God and the way of salvation in Christ. The word parable itself actually means uh, to place something alongside of something else. So, uh, and for the purpose of clarification. So you have one truth that is invisible, a heavenly reality. And you take an earthly picture and you set it alongside and you connect the dots. And if people have the ability to understand, they can draw conclusions from one to the other. You're setting aside an earthly picture alongside a heavenly reality. But of course, not everyone understands them. Only those, as Jesus says here in verse 9, who have ears to hear end up hearing. It's easy to put emphasis on the hearing part. It sounds perhaps to us initially like Jesus is saying, listen up, everybody. Hear what I'm saying and understand it. Figure it out and get the deep meaning. But that's not actually what Jesus is saying. That's not his emphasis. We know that because what he emphasizes is not hearing, but the one who has ears to hear. We also know this because Jesus didn't come up with this phrase when he was on earth. He was quoting something that he, or the Father, told Ezekiel to say centuries before. In Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 27, we read these words. Thus says the Lord God, He who will hear, let him hear. And he who will refuse to hear, let him refuse. What is implied in Ezekiel's ministry but not stated in Jesus, what is implied in Jesus, but not, but not stated, is, is the negative side. Not only let him who has ears hear, but he who refuses to hear, let him refuse and remain deaf. So Ezekiel is ministering to a people who are about to be subject to judgment, a people that are under judgment. And the message that he's proclaiming is only for those who have been given the capacity to understand it. Now, Jesus only speaks the first half, essentially. He who has ears, let him hear. But what is implied in this quotation is the other side of it as well. So not only is he saying, the focus is on the one who has ears. I'm speaking to you, not to the others. Here. And the emphasis the implied emphasis from the Old Testament background is that there will be some who do not have the capacity to hear and they ought not then hear. So although, brothers and sisters, parables do reveal the kingdom of God for some, 
For others, the parables are also concealing or obscuring the kingdom of God. And that's because in a parable, what you hear, the earthly story itself, does not provide the interpretive key that you need to understand the earthly story's heavenly meaning. We understand that the parable of the sower, we understand it because we have Jesus' interpretation about it in the verses that follow that we didn't read. He's given us the interpretation as he gave to his disciples. And without that, we wouldn't know what in the world he was talking about. And that's all the crowd had when they heard Jesus teach in parables. They walk away saying, Jesus, you painted a beautiful scene, agrarian scene. And that's as far as it goes. Unless you're numbered among those who follow Jesus and he pulls you aside and privately gives you the explanation of it. As he says, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. The hearer must get the interpretive key from somewhere other than the parable itself in order to get the parable's meaning. The teacher doesn't provide it, at least not publicly. And that's why Jesus says in verse 9, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, those who have the interpretive key, let them understand the heavenly meaning of this earthly story. In fact, it's probably better than having an interpretive key. He who's uh, been changed and given a capacity from heaven to see the heavenly reality, let him hear. Jesus is tipping people off to the fact that firstly, there is a meaning that goes beyond the surface reading. Everyone got the agrarian picture. There was no confusion about that. There must be something else that needs to be understood. Secondly, he reveals that it's something his listeners must already possess, which will enable them to hear or understand the message. They must already have the ears to hear as he speaks. And thirdly, by implication, not everyone will understand what he means by what he says, because not everyone will have the ears to hear. The Spirit-given capacity to interpret. So again, although parables do reveal the kingdom of God, they, they do, but they only do it for some. And for others, they conceal or obscure the same. At the end of the day, then, by both revealing to some and concealing from others, the parables most fundamentally did what? Divided. Sorted. Separated people. They revealed who had ears to hear and who did not. Some walked away from Jesus saying, I, you know, I could go look out and watch a sower. I don't need to hear a guy tell me what that looks like. And others said, there's wisdom from heaven here and I will follow him. Those who didn't have ears to hear, did not understand, and therefore did not believe or take heed to the heavenly message of the parable and its implications for how they ought to live, they didn't even catch those. Those with ears to hear understood and responded in faith. We'll look more at that in a bit. And all of this then becomes evident. The parables were a part of Jesus' ministry to make the thoughts of people's hearts manifest. Perhaps you remember in Luke 2, when the baby Jesus is brought to the temple, and Simeon blesses him and his father and his mother, his adoptive father Joseph, that is. And I'm sure he blessed the Father in heaven as well. But he says to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel, 
and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. So that, what's the point of all that? So that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This was part of Jesus' ministry and mission while he was on earth in Israel, the covenant community. Jesus was born into a world in which many things that were hidden needed to be made manifest and revealed. There were many people within the covenant community, the old covenant church of Israel, all thinking they were in the family of God because they were sons of Abraham. But what was the truth of the matter? The truth of the matter is not all Israel were true Israel. And the thoughts of many hearts, the reality of many men's soul condition needed to be brought to the surface and revealed. And Jesus came to reveal the reality of who were really his in Israel as a part of his ministry. And here, according to Simeon, we can see here what Jesus comes to reveal, as we've already mentioned, was not just the Father. He did that. John's Gospel focuses on that a lot. He did not just come to reveal the kingdom of God. He did that, as the Synoptic Gospels focus our attention on. He reveals the way of salvation, and he makes it possible through his life and his death and his resurrection. But particularly here, we notice one thing he came to reveal, the thoughts from many hearts. He came to reveal where people really were with the Lord God. Were the Pharisees actually God's men, as everyone assumed? Not unless they repented of their self-righteousness. Many people thought the tax collectors and the prostitutes were the furthest from the kingdom, and certainly the Gentiles. But what was the truth that Jesus came to bring to light? That everyone comes to the Father only through him. Not through their moral performance. Not through their ability to perform according to the ceremonial law. Not because of their tribal inheritance. Not because of their identification with circumcision in the covenant nation of Israel. No, he was bringing a change. People standing with God rested upon their relationship with him. And not all these other things that were passing away. So Jesus' ministry of teaching parables functioned to sort and to separate, to categorize, to divide, to distinguish among men, with, particularly within the covenant community. And this is not just an incidental feature of Jesus' ministry or an undesirable result or a necessary evil or even just an unintended consequence of Jesus' presence on earth in his teaching ministry. What we learn in verses 10 through 12 is that the power of the parables to sort and to divide and distinguish people was precisely what Jesus desired. He reveals that he didn't treat everyone the same. On the one hand, he treated his apostles and those around him, as it's described here. He treats them differently, giving them the secret of the kingdom of God. And as a brief note, those around him likely referred to um, perhaps the women that Luke mentions specifically and by name that attended upon the apostles and Jesus. Others, such as Joseph of Arimathea, Lazarus, those that were his disciples but were not of the twelve. These are the ones he gave the secret of the kingdom to. But on the other hand, you had the crowd whom Jesus taught merely in parables, intentionally using them to keep some people in the dark. Praise God, saints. Not that some are in the dark, but that although God intentionally leaves some in the dark, you have, if you have, been given ears to hear. 
Has the Lord given you a capacity to understand his word? To respond rightly in faith and repentance? To love him, to walk in his ways? Is that life at work in you? You could have easily been numbered among the many who sit in pews and hear everything that you hear but do not understand because they do not have ears to hear. And the life that the word of the kingdom is intended to produce, something that the parable of the sower speaks to, does not grow in them, but grows in you because of the Lord's choice to show mercy and grace to you. Be humbled and be grateful. We must be humbled at these things because we know that darkness is our natural habitat as sinners. This is evident in our passage when we realize that no one in this passage was naturally capable of understanding the parables. There actually was no one with ears to hear. No one had ears to hear. No one understood Jesus' parables here. Jesus had to give the secret of the kingdom of God to those who he chose to give it to, his disciples and those who attended on them. This is what God does when he effectually calls sinners to himself. He enlightens our minds and the knowledge of Christ as a part of our redemption. Here Jesus provided the interpretive key uh, to his apostles even before they were given the Spirit on Pentecost. He gives them this capacity to understand because he had to. They came asking, what did all of this mean? I need to teach you too. Yes, you do. Not even did they have, not even, forgive me. And this is only, this is the only thing that enables them to understand all the other parables as well. As we see here in verse 13, which we didn't read, Jesus says to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? And we won't get into this this morning, but this parable itself is a foundational lesson that must be understood to understand the other lessons. So if they don't understand this one, the rest are just meaningless to them entirely. By his grace, he, as a gift of God, must give this capacity to them. He gives ears to hear to his chosen close associates, the 12 plus some others. Those with ears to hear, saints, have always been those who have received ears to hear from the Lord. We notice this, actually, if you look back at the book of Deuteronomy, there's a very interesting note there. Um, Deuteronomy 29, verses 2 through 4, which says this, Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh, and to all of his servants, and to all of his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. We think of the rivers turning to blood and locusts and frogs and hail and animals dying, etc. The death of the firstborn. They've seen it all. But he continues and he says this. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. Brothers and sisters, why didn't Israel have a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear the significance of what was laid before their eyes in dramatic display in Egypt and in the Red Sea, etc.? Because the Lord hadn't given such to them. The Lord hadn't given such to them. We're not born with this capacity. 
This is the condition of all mankind, and our passage teaches the same truth. In the Lord's uh, infinite wisdom, he determined to withhold it from most. Moses could see it, no doubt. There were others, but the vast majority of Israel could not see it, and the same was true in Jesus' day. So from the vantage point of the Gospel of Mark, we can see Jesus' parabolic strategy was to do something unexpected to us, to divide or sort or distinguish one type of person from another. This is the immediate impact of the parables. But why? Why was that an appropriate ministry for Jesus to undertake at that time? We can consider now one additional thing, the eventual outcome of the parables, a prelude to judgment. Mark alludes to these things in verse 12 when he reminds us or reveals to us that Jesus quoted a portion of Isaiah 6. Jesus turns to it. Maybe in your Bible, it's an indented section of text, uh, verse 12, so that, and then you get quotations, they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand lest they should turn and be forgiven. Jesus quotes here from Isaiah in his public ministry. Well, forgive me, in his private ministry to his disciples. Let me read you a little bit of the context there. Back in Isaiah. It says this, Isaiah 6, starting at verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land, and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is in its stump. So here, Isaiah is ministering again in a day of impending judgment coming upon the covenant nation of God's people. And his ministry is to actually speak a word that causes the people to be deaf. Why? Because they have been destined for judgment by the decree of the sovereign God. And for them to understand the call to believe and repent and to turn would be to put them in a position where they could be forgiven. And the Lord had determined that these people, for their many sins and idolatries, would be judged. And yet, he also determined to send a prophet in their midst to proclaim the word and to prove, among many things, that they are not capable of hearing if he does not give them the capacity. To glorify himself in the reality that he alone is sovereign in salvation. He alone can deliver from judgment. He must change the heart and the mind of those he is determined to save. And Isaiah's mission was to preach. Could you, would you like that ministry? To proclaim a word where most, if not all of your hearers, do not understand it and so then are consigned to judgment and are not delivered. Saints Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jesus, none of them came to save as many people as possible. That was never God's mission. But fundamentally to glorify himself in the redemption of sinners by mercy and in the judgment of sinners 
in his sovereign justice, those whom he has determined. This is what Jesus' parabolic strategy is all about. It was a means of ensuring that those who God had determined to judge in Israel would be judged and those he determined to save would be saved. And all of this is preceding the judgment that God planned to bring upon his people. Uh, this happened in the first century. The risen Christ, in the power of his Father, makes use of the Roman armies to wipe out Jerusalem, destroy the temple, and take into exile 100,000 people that remained. This was a judgment upon Old Covenant Israel for their idolatries, for their failure to trust in the Messiah and to continue practicing the Old Covenant religion, which became idolatrous once the final sacrifice had been offered in Christ's own life and death. And so Jesus is preparing this covenant people for that day of transition from the old to the new covenant. All of these things may make some of us uncomfortable in our modern American nicety, our culture of nice, our preference for being easy on people while diminishing the glory of God. We think that all discrimination is wrong, and there is much discrimination which is unjust and wrong for us to make as people. Let that be understood not least of which is racial. But discrimination is not wrong for God. God has a right to choose whom he will save and whom he will judge. We all deserve to be punished in hell for eternity for our sins. We all deserve to be left in the domain of darkness. And if God chooses to save some, beloved, it is merely because of his mercy. And he has the right to do what he does. For he is God and we are not. We are his creation. He does not exist for the sake of humanity's salvation. We exist for his glory. And God is glorified not only when he saves sinners, but also when he judges sinners in his holiness. All of this is confirmed with one other passage I'd like to read to you from Matthew chapter 3 which speaks about the nature of Jesus' ministry, even upon its, um, before it begins. Here we have John the Baptist speaking about the Christ who was about to come, who was even before him. And here John the Baptist is ministering at, um, at the Jordan River, and many in Israel who had probably ears to hear, so to speak, the Lord was, was working in their hearts, bringing them to him to repent of their sins, were being baptized, confessing their sins. But then come the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the scripture says this. But when he, that is John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The parables, brothers and sisters, are one 
mode of Jesus using his winnowing fork. And you would bring the grain into the barn. You would take a particular tool, the winnowing fork, and it would allow you to sort. You would toss up the grain in the air, and all of the chaff would blow away, and the, the thing you wanted would remain and fall back to the ground. And so you would clear out all of that which was useless. Jesus, in his earthly ministry, is actively using the winnowing fork to separate the wheat from the chaff within the covenant community. And his parables were one of the many ways that he did this. He reveals true people's true hearts, and he brings to himself all those who have um, been called to eternal life into the kingdom and leaves behind all those who will be subject to judgment. So that the division between God's people and the world would no longer be between Jews and Gentiles. Or between those whose earthly circumstances looked good and those who didn't. The wealthy and healthy inside and the poor and afflicted outside the kingdom. Or perhaps on the basis of the religiosity, rigorous law keepers inside and, and sinners who couldn't keep up with the ceremonial law on the outside. But merely on the basis of whether they knew Christ and had faith in him, and understood his word, and bore the fruit of repentance unto forgiveness. This is a part of how Jesus ministered on earth in his gospel ministry. And so we must take lessons from it. We must understand, brothers and sisters, what it is that we are called to do in our work in the world. And this is a part of it. There are many lessons to take from it. Many lessons. Should we begin to preach in parables? Should we begin to preach in encrypted sayings and then have a special meeting after the worship service where only those who are initiated to the third level of membership get the secret to understand it? No, that's, that's how Scientology works. Okay? That's not the methodology we will take up in the Church of Jesus Christ. We don't need to, in fact. We are given the mandate to proclaim openly the Word of God, as I'm doing here. But there is an effect... The effect that the parables had in Israel in the first century still pertains today in the world as the gospel proliferates among the nations. In 2 Corinthians 4, the Apostle Paul teaches us this. He says, Having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. What we must understand then, saints, is that although we do not speak in parables as Jesus did and differentiate who gets what instruction, but proclaim the truth boldly to all, yet the same effect pertains. Some will have ears to hear and some will not have ears to hear. And that's, I'm not to differentiate the sides of the worship hall this morning. <laughs> See people scurrying over to this side really quickly. But this truly happens. And some today who do not have ears to hear will be given ears to hear, and in 10 months or 10 years will then have ears to hear. Praise God for that mercy. But we should expect this as a, as a function of the church's ministry and as a function of our own interaction with those who are outside or perhaps with our covenant youth. We will bring the word to them, and some will have ears to hear, and some will not. 
And it should not be our goal to do everything we can above and beyond the open declaration of the truth to get them in when they are not actually hearing and understanding and walking by faith and repentance. We should let the Lord's ministry of sorting humanity continue through our ministry and not work against it. So we don't take up underhanded means. We don't try to get the biggest crowd possible through some method other than what God has given us. We must be content with the reality that part of the ministry is to reveal those who are not being called of God, at least not today, and they will not come in. And that is a part of God's purpose, because although there was a judgment day for Israel in the first century, a judgment day for the whole world is yet on the horizon. And this whole world is being prepared for that day by the ministry of Christ's body, the church, by the power of his spirit. Now let me give a couple brief points of, of application before we go to prayer and close here. Do you claim to have ears to hear? Then let us pay attention to what kind of fruit ought to come from those ears. How in this passage are those who have ears to hear revealed? What does it say? If you have ears to hear, you will see and perceive, you will hear and understand, and you will turn, that is repent, and be forgiven. Brothers and sisters, if you have ears to hear, it must and should manifest itself in the life of repentance, turning from sin, and knowing and enjoying the forgiveness of God. Two key fruits of the Christian life, ongoing repentance and assurance of God's forgiveness. This is key to the Christian life. So give yourself to that life. Seek by your study of the word of God to be assured of forgiveness and to see where God's calling you from your sin and turn away from it. Here is the fruit of having ears to hear. Elders, this is what the Lord himself would have you look for in those who desire to profess faith in Christ and join this church as communicant members, whether we're talking about baptized youth or those who come from the outside. You must look for an understanding of the gospel that is not merely intellectual, not merely agreement, but an understanding which includes assurance of God's forgiveness and a knowledge of how God is leading them to repent. That's the fruit you're looking for. Is the understanding people are receiving leading them into mere intellectualism, theological knowledge, or is it the life of repentance and assurance that is actually beginning to flow? This should be an encouragement to you to look for such things and pray for such insight as you minister to the flock, and in particular as you admit people to membership. And for all of us, as we consider the lost, this is how we pray for them. One of the ways. We ask the Lord to give them ears to hear, that they would understand the word of God, the good news of Jesus Christ, that they might repent of their sins, turn from them, be forgiven by God, and enjoy the inheritance of his love in assurance of forgiveness. And in these ways and in so many others, no doubt, the Lord continues his ministry that he began through us. May he be praised, may he be glorified through it in this place. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have the right to judge, to sort, 
how near and dear to our hearts, to save. Thank you, Father, that you have not merely come to wipe out this planet and humanity, but that you have actually set some aside and distinguished them from others, set some aside for mercy and for grace and for everlasting salvation, for a life of fruitful repentance and of assurance of your love. And we pray, Father, that, that this would be a fruit of this church's ministry, that as your word goes forward openly, that it would cause those who are being called to Christ to come and to grow in this very life. And we pray, Father, for wisdom to apply this to our hearts in the way we see your church, your kingdom, your ministry. May you be lifted up, glorified, and praised for now and all eternity. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please turn with me in your Psalter.